morning, Southbridge. It's great to see you. Great to have you here. It's great to see some of my friends, some I haven't seen in a little while. And uh, those of you who are guests, I want to welcome you too. Maybe we've uh, never met before, and I'd love to meet you. If you have an opportunity next week, I'm actually, we're actually going to have what we call Discovering Southbridge. There's a little blue tent we put out in the, the hallway out there in the lobby. And uh, some of you are new to church, and I haven't met you yet. I try to get out after the second service, say hi to all the first-time guests. But sometimes that doesn't happen, and I would love to meet you. If you'd meet me out there next week in the blue tent uh, for Discovering Southbridge, that would be great. And I can tell you a little bit of the story of our church and get to know you a little bit better. And some of you maybe aren't new to the church, but we've never met before for some reason. Um, I met somebody last time we did Discovering out there that had come five years ago and then stopped coming to the church and moved to a different part of town, and then we're coming back. And so... Uh, we were it was able to connect for the first time, and I'd love to connect with you if you're able. And if you're a guest today, what I'd love for you to do is uh, on your way in, you probably received a little card called the worship, or the worship program had a card in it called the connection card. If you'd fill that out, tell us how you heard about us as a church. We'd love to invite more people to church. So if you could fill that card out for us, uh, that would be a blessing to each one of us. And then to let you know what's been going on, we've been doing a series since January 2013 through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually interesting because it comes right after the Gospels. The New Testament starts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts comes next. And what it is, it's what happens after Jesus dies on the cross and rises again. It's the beginning of Christianity. And what Christianity started as was not a social group of people gathering together. It wasn't just a a club of folks that were wanting to do religious rituals. It wasn't people that voted the same way. It wasn't all the stuff that a lot of times we make Christianity into. It was a group of people whose lives had been radically changed by Jesus. And so the way he did this movement, it was a movement of God, not just a gathering of people. The way he did this movement called Christianity was he transformed the life of an individual. And as he turned that person's life upside down, that person then became his witness. And that's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's not only the outline of the book of Acts, it's also God's plan for the early church and also his plan for us today. And so as your life is turned upside down by Jesus Christ, then he wants to use you as his witness, declaring what he's done in your life to those that you come into contact with. And he used that in the first century to transform the world, and he still wants to use it now, today. And so we're talking about how church started, how Christianity started. How did this thing go from Jesus dying on the cross, 12 guys, 11 left, to being what it is today? And so that's what we're talking about in the book of Acts. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you want to jump there um, before we even turn there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the scriptures together and see what God's doing in Acts chapter 17 and ask him to do something in our lives. Let me pray. Father God, thank you uh, for being able to gather together with a group of believers and those that don't know you too. I pray that there will be some here that have yet to come to know you and that today would be the day of salvation for them. And I thank you for those that have known you, some for years, many years. And I pray they'd know you better as a result of our opening up your scriptures today. I pray for some that uh, maybe are going through a dry time spiritually, that this would be like a drink of water for a person in the desert. That I pray for those that uh, are maybe veering off course, that are starting to make bad decisions, that you'd grab them, uh, their attention and draw them back to you. And I pray, God, for those of us who just need a word of encouragement and comfort, that you do that. And God, by your spirit, you're able to do all these different things with the same words. And I pray you'd, you'd use the words that'll come out of my mouth. And I pray you would let people see your son, Jesus Christ, through the scriptures as we open them today, and that they would love him, and they'd love him more, and they'd know him more. Help us to know you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I was thinking a little bit this week about how much information that we get now and the time that we live with the technology we have and all the devices and all those things. And think about this for a moment. How many things do you know today that you didn't know last Sunday when we gathered together? Think about some of it's ridiculous stuff. I'm not asking necessarily all these things you learned. Sometimes you know new information because someone sent you a video from YouTube of a dog singing. 
you know, the maple kind. Have you seen that video? There's all this stuff that's out there. Just think about all the things that you see on Facebook, all the different things that you see in your email box, all the things that you read in articles. If you like the stock market, you probably learned new information this week you didn't know last week. If you like sports, you probably read new headlines. If you follow the weather, you saw all kinds of weather updates. If you read different articles, there's all kinds of things out there. And this week, I tried to find an article that would summarize just how much information there is on the Internet. And I found one article that tried to put all that stuff together. And when I started reading it, it said that just on the Internet alone, there are about 1.2 zettabytes of information. That didn't mean anything to me. I didn't even know the word zetta was a word until I read that sentence. And so I continued to read on, and it said that means there are about 1.3 trillion gigabytes, which that number's too big. I don't even know what that means. I know that there are gigabytes on my computer, but I don't know how many 1.3 trillion is. And so I continued to read, and they tried to put it in perspective. You could see it. They said that means if you took an iPad, filled it with information, and then began to stack them on each other, you could stack them 339 miles into the sky to have that much information. And I thought, I still can't grasp that, but that's a lot of stuff. Do you know what I mean? There's a, and that article, by the way, the only one I could find was from 2010. That was four years ago. There's more information now. There's a lot of information out there. Let me tell you what this means, a little interpretation. We have some incredibly smart people at our church. Some of you are very intelligent people, but even you can't know everything. There's too much information out there. We just can't know all of it. Have you ever walked into a conversation before? People are talking about stuff. You don't know what they're talking about. I was telling the first service, I'm in a, we do small groups at our church, and my e-group, uh, we have three different guys in the group that work in the computer industry. I don't know what that means, okay? I don't even know if that's software development, programming, what it is, but the guy who was leading, playing guitar today is in my e-group, and he was talking the other day at our group, and he started talking about Seagull script. <laughs> I didn't know Seagulls could write. I had no idea. Like, I just, I listen, and so I hear some of this talking, and sometimes I try to pretend like I know what's going on. I sound like a fool, I'm sure, and then there are other times where I just smile and kind of walk away, and then I just don't even know what's happening. You ever had that happen? Maybe with science. People are talking, using science jargon or sports. If you're not into sports, you know, last week was Super Bowl Sunday, and don't ever be the person that walks into the conversation of people talking about the Super Bowl and says, yeah, I hope NC State hits a home run in the Super Bowl. You know, that's what I'm like when I start talking about Seagull script. Like, you just don't, you don't know in those moments. And there's lots of stuff out there, and there are things we just don't know. And probably some of you are in process of learning certain things, and, and you know some stuff, maybe enough to be dangerous, you don't know enough stuff. And think about when you're with the kids. Remember when you were a kid, learning new things, to ride a bike, we're training one of our kids potty training right now, or... And they ask questions sometimes. They're just out of nowhere. And every parent, there's a question that every parent doesn't want to hear, but every parent gets asked. Where do babies come from? And I remember asking my mom that question. I may have shared some of this with you before, but it was such a scarring moment that I probably think about it often. I remember sitting at the table, and I was probably like six or something, and we're having dinner, and I looked at my mom and said, Mom, where do babies come from? It's just like out of nowhere to her. And I remember she looks over at my dad, and then she's looking at her dinner, and she says, From eating fish stick sandwiches. I think we were having fish sticks for dinner that night, and I did not eat the rest of that meal. And uh, we have four children in my home now, and I cannot remember four times having fish sticks for dinner. <laughs> Something else is going on, right? But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff to know, and we can't know all of it. And sometimes that ends up being funny, and sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes it can create social barriers. Sometimes it can create segues into different types of conversation. But sometimes it's dangerous. In fact, if you read the scriptures, what you see is that Jesus is continually warning people about thinking that they know things that they don't know. Thinking that they know someone that they don't know. Thinking that they know God when they don't really know him. And some of them worship him. And some of them uh, say stuff about him to publicly for other people. Some of those people 
serve him, they think. And Jesus warns them, but you don't know me. If you want to see some of these stories, you can read John chapter 4 on your own. There's a story where there's a woman that comes to Jesus at a well, and they start having a conversation, and she starts arguing about worship. And the Jews worship on this mountain, the Samaritans worship on that mountain, you know, the Baptists go to church over here, the Nazarenes go to church over here, where should I go to church? And Jesus says to her, you don't even know the one you worship. Like your, your, your conversation, you know, how this type of worship, should it be traditional or contemporary? Do you even know the one you're worshiping? You say, let's not miss the main thing. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us what the judgment day will be like. He will be the judge. There are people that will come to him that will be surprised on judgment day. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Didn't we serve you? Didn't we do lots of stuff for you? And then verse 23, then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now God knows everyone. He's created us. He knows everything about us. But he's saying we didn't have relationship. You didn't know me. I didn't know you in that way. Away from me, you evildoers. Depart from me. I never knew you. Last week we talked about the scriptures and we looked at how there were guys that knew the Bible. They knew the Bible so well, but Jesus confronts them. John chapter 5, and he says, listen, you think that by the scriptures that, that you have eternal life, but the scriptures, they all point to me. You need to know me. And so I'll tell you as a pastor, my fear is that every week, not just around the world, not just in America, not just in North Carolina, not just in the Triangle, not just in certain churches, but even in this church, there are people that come and sing songs. They worship, but they don't know him. And it can be this kind of church. It can be more liturgical church where there's lots of things. You go through, you go through the religious motions, but you don't know the one you're worshiping. And, and I, I fear there are people that, that think because they serve and they do certain things, whether it's in something at the church or whether it's outside the church, that they think that somehow that's getting points for God, but you don't even know him. And then there are people that learn jargon. They know the language. They can say Christian stuff. You've been Christianized, but you don't know Christ. And there are people, I think, that, that I think... They learn Bible verses and they complete classes and you go to catechisms and you know when to say the right things at the right moments. And Maybe you've completed all the Bible study fellowship classes or you've gotten through the book of Genesis or you've done something and you think that because of that, but you don't know him and you miss it. And so you know verses, but you don't know him. And so today we're going to be talking about knowing the unknown God. And I hope that if you don't know him, that by the end of today, you'll know him. And I hope if you do know him, by the end of this message, you'll know him better and long for him more. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, picking up at verse 16, where we left off last week. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. What's going on there is that last week, Paul was in Berea, Varia, it's pronounced today. And while he was there, there were people there that longed for the word. They were earnest for it. They were eager for it. And we talked about what those folks were like. But then the folks from the town before that, Thessalonica, came and drove Paul out. And so he ends up in a town called Athens, about 200 miles away from, from Varia. And, and while he's there, he's waiting for his buddies, his partners in ministry, Timothy and Silas. And he's in this town, Athens, which is a well-known town. Some of you might, are familiar with it. It's a famous town. They had the Olympics there not too long ago. It's a cultural town. It's a religious center. Um, its heyday was actually hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. When it had philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they all taught there. It was a cultural center, a religious center, a university town. The most famous university in the world at this time was in Athens. And Paul's there, but he didn't go there on mission. He didn't go there with a plan to try and reach these people for Jesus. He's there because he had to vacate uh, Varia 
and he's waiting for his buddies. Look at it in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, mentioned in the verse right before this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. The Greek word there is, he's infuriated. He's angry, like pound your hand on the table angry, like yelling angry, not just irritated. He's infuriated to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul comes in here. He's just hanging out in this town, Athens. Maybe he decides to go do a little sightseeing. He wasn't there with a plan. He didn't have a preaching schedule. He didn't have some plan of the way that he was going to bring the gospel to these people. He's there because the things went bad at the last place he was at. He's hanging out. He goes around, does some sightseeing. He becomes infuriated, burdened, angry. And then what you see is a vision is born. And oftentimes visions are born. Great visions are born. Of people being distressed. Things are not as they should be. And you think about it through the scriptures. Look at Moses. Moses is in the palace. He's got everything you could want. And he looks out and he sees how the Egyptians are treating the Hebrews. And he receives a burden. And out of that burden, a vision's born. Doesn't do what he should do at that moment, but that's where the burden started. Nehemiah, sitting in the palace of Susa. Here's the walls are down in Jerusalem. And it burdens his heart. He may have never even seen Jerusalem before, but God's people are living in that type of situation. It's bringing disrespect to God's name. A burden that gives birth to a vision. And here Paul, he has this burden for these people. He's distressed. You see, Jesus looks over Jerusalem. He says, if the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, but done here, they would have repented. And he cries over the city of Jerusalem. And Paul here with Athens. And I think about our city. And Raleigh Durham. Very similar to Athens in many ways. But then you think about what it's like. And I think about the burden that we had when we came to plant this church. We wanted people to know Christ. And not to go through religious motions, not to just do gather at an event, not just to do acts of service, but to be transformed at your heart to where your desires, you'd actually want him, you'd long for him, you'd long for his word. You want to be intimate with him because he so radically transformed your life. Then it would change everything about you. And because we knew that's not what was happening for many people. And then you look at our city. Do you ever look at our city and things burden your heart? Just think about on the way in here. Many of you drove by Capital Cabriolet. Wasn't there a couple years ago. A strip club, by the way. For those of you who didn't notice it, you're so righteous you didn't even see it. It's a joke. Think about what it means that it's there. It's not just an eyesore in our community as you fly into this city, but it means there are men that are going to go there on lunch breaks, and they're going to be seeking pleasure or break or release from stress, and it's going to end up being bondage and be trapped. It means there's young women that are there. They're image bearers of God. They're going to be treated like objects. That means things are not as they should be. Does it burden you? Think about marriages. Marriages fall apart all the time. Whether it's in our church, whether it's outside the church, marriages are declining uh, in, a, in a bad way in our culture. Think about what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Husbands are commanded to love their wives like Christ loved the church. He died for the church, Ephesians chapter 5. So every time a marriage falls apart, what does it say about the gospel? Things are not as they should be. Every time there's a believer who professes things with their mouth, within their life denies what they've just said with their mouth. Things are not as they should be. Does any of this burden you? Do you read articles in the newspaper? Do you ever see things? you see the young boy that was being bullied that tried to take his own life? I don't know if he's a believer in Jesus. I don't know any of that stuff. But he comes to Christ. He has an identity in Christ. What other people say doesn't matter. He doesn't know that. And so things are not as they should be. Paul saw that in Athens, and he was greatly distressed. What bothers you? God may be birthing a vision. 
And so Paul didn't have a plan of preaching the gospel when he came to Athens. He was waiting for his friends to show up. But what happens in verses 17 through 21, I'll summarize for you. It sets up what Paul does while he's in Athens is he begins to go and preach. And he does what he does in other cities. He goes to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And he preaches there. That's where the Jews would be, the God-fearing Greeks. And then he goes to the marketplace. And so he goes to the RTP. He goes to the place where business would be done. He goes to Wall Street. He goes into the spot where people are at. And whoever he comes into contact with, he starts telling them about what God did in his life. And how God changed him. He's a witness. And then what happens while he's preaching there in verse 18, there are some philosophers that come into the marketplace, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They begin to argue with him. They begin to talk trash to him. They called him a babbler. It means that, Paul, you're picking up other people's ideas. You're spotting them off as yourself, and you don't even understand them. So they're talking trash to him, but they bring him before the Areopagus. Areopagus would be the academics, the university folk, the 30 guys who would decide what are the ideas that we continue to talk about. They judge all the newest and latest thoughts. And so Paul comes before the Areopagus, and he begins to give what would be in modern-day terminology much like a TED Talk, for those of you who are familiar with that. But instead of just giving a philosophy of life, what Paul does is he preaches the gospel. And he starts in verse 22. It says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Well, that would be slightly offensive to some in our culture today, but it, was, uh, it would be like saying today, I see that you're spiritual. A lot of people now don't want to be called religious. They're spiritual but not religious. That means they don't go to church, they don't go to mosque, they don't go to synagogue. But they know that there's more than just flesh and blood. They don't want you to think they're shallow. And so I'm a spiritual person. Paul says to them here, I see that you're very spiritual people. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. And so now he's saying something you saw right from their culture to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. And he starts preaching, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And here's why. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us on his team. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need any of that stuff. Because he gave it to us. He's the creator. And he says this, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And so he said to the Areopagus, he determined that you would be here at this very moment, Areopagus, these 30 powerful men that are supposed to make judgment on what's worthy to be listened to and what's not. He said the exact time, the exact places where each one of us would be. And so he knew you'd be here at this moment right now. And he says to these guys that know so much stuff. I'm going to tell you about a God you don't know. And so he presents to them their problem. You're worshiping a God you don't even know. And then he tells them the solution. I'm going to tell you how to know him. And what he goes on to tell them is that you need to know him as creator. You need to know him as father. You need to know him as judge. And I told you my fear for us is that we would think that we know Jesus. But in reality, what many people have done is you're not placing your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You're placing your faith on what you did when you walked an aisle or raised your hand. What many people do is you're not placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're placing your faith in Jesus amongst the many gods that you believe in and follow. And so you've added Jesus to the mix to cover your basis. That's the very thing that the Athenians were doing with this unknown God. You don't know him, but you think you know him. And Paul says here, if you're going to know him, you need to know him as creator. That's the first thing that we see. You need to know him as father. You need to know him as judge. But the first thing we see is if we're going to know God, we must know him as creator. 
You've got to start at the beginning. And you think about how the Bible starts. The very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. He made it all. That's where we start. If you're going to know him, you must know him as creator. You go to the book of John, a book that was written. John tells us the reason why I wrote this book is so you'd know Jesus Christ. You know how he starts his book, which is basically a gospel track? It says this in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Got that? He was before there was. He was at the very beginning. Verse 3 says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing's been made that's been made. And so Jesus was at the very beginning. He created all things. Anything that exists, he created. And so you got it at the beginning of the Bible. You got it at the middle of the Bible. You know, the Bible in the book of Revelation says that God's being worshipped. The elders are bowing down before him in heaven. They're worshipping him. Guess why? Because he created everything. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's why. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. If we're going to know him, we must know him as creator. And so here Paul stands before the Areopagus, stands before the Athenians that are listening on, these people that know so much stuff and have so many gods. And he's here in Athens, this famous city, and he says to them, I'm going to tell you about the gods you don't know. And if you're going to know him, you must know him as creator. Try to imagine being Paul going into this city. It's a religious center. It's a university town in many ways, like RDU. Come here, you think about how many universities we have, how many university students. I hear estimates somewhere around 100,000 every year. You've got your major universities, the big three. You've got some other ones. Some of you have attended some of these other ones. There's a lot of thought here. You think about it being a religious center. We are in the buckle of the Bible belt. There are churches everywhere. You can go to different kinds of churches, different styles of churches, different brands of churches. All, you know, if you want this kind, that kind, traditional, contemporary. And some of you, that, you spend your life going from one to the next. They're all over the place. But not just churches. Think about all the worship centers there are in Raleigh. We've got the Dean Dome, the Cameron Crazies, the Hurricanes play. We've got all these stadiums for sports. You think about the libraries that are here the knowledge that we worship there are more than just the capital cabriolet there's uh, all kinds of porn shops you got the malls you start looking at triangle town mall south south point you got uh what a crab tree and the one down in Cary. there's malls everywhere and paul comes into this town and it says that he's greatly distressed because he sees the objects of their worship he's at this religious center this place with all this thought and he sees that they're worshiping a god they don't even know what do you think it was like for Paul to come into Athens? I've been to Athens before. It's a beautiful place. And you see some of the architecture there, the Parthenon, the remnants of the Temple of Zeus that are there. And Paul goes through and he comes into a foreign land and he sees these different gods that they're worshiping. And if you've ever been to a foreign place, you go to other places and see some of the things they worship. It can just cause you to scratch your head as an American. Go to India, see the way they treat animals. It's, it's weird to us. You go to Africa and the witch doctors, and see the superstitious stuff they do. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like to come to America for the first time from one of those places? Try and imagine that you come from India, you come from Africa, and you come to the United States, and you land at RDU Airport. And the first thing you do when you get off the plane, try and imagine this, is you come over here to Briar Creek, and you walk into Barnes & Noble, and you see all the magazine covers. What would you decide are our objects of worship? 
Or maybe after you leave uh, the Barnes & Noble bookstore, you come out and you see all the restaurants we have. And you see Earth Fair, the different stores and all those things. And, and then you come into the movie theater and you see the things that we use for entertainment. What would you conclude are our objects of worship? Maybe after church, you go home with someone and you sit down and you watch TV and you see our commercials. What would you conclude are our objects of worship? If you had never been here before, I think what happens is sometimes we see this stuff so much, we become so familiar with it, we, we don't even realize what's happening. What do you think are our objects of worship? Like, really, I want to hear your answers. Go ahead, tell me. What do you think are some objects of worship that you would see, that you would come to the conclusion of if you visited here the first time? Time? Is that what someone said? What else? Houses? Creation, for sure, in general. Somebody said something over here I missed. Cars, stuff, smartphones, yep, lots of material things. Food, that's an interesting one. I was, I've been reading a book uh, right now by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried. It talks about the temptations of Jesus. He talks about in there, and I'm surprised no one said it yet, how food and sex. No one said sex. Uh, that's interesting. They're talking about how food and sex are so similar in the Bible and throughout culture the cravings that we have. We go after these things. We long for these things and how they end up controlling us many times. No, food and sex aren't exactly the same. Obviously, you don't have to believe it or not, regardless of what some teenage boys may try to say. You don't have to have sex to survive. You do have to have food to survive. And uh, you have to have sex in order to continue to procreate. I understand that there are some parallels in those things, but he talks about it uh, through there. And I haven't thought about food a lot until recently. And I think about how intimate food is. And some of you ask yourself, does food control you? A few years ago, um, I had a situation where I was drinking, I would drink Coke. I still drink Coke, but I would drink like three or four Cokes a day. I would skip meals and just drink Coke. I'd drink a Coke before each service here. And then one day it just kind of hit me. I was telling some of my friends this this week. I thought, am I addicted to Coke? Coca-Cola, by the way, as you were wondering. Just clarify that. It just popped into my head there. Anyway, the, um, and uh, I thought, well, yeah, I'm not, I can't be addicted to that, so I'm just going to stop. And so I stopped. I stopped drinking it. At about day three, I had a terrible headache. So withdrawing from the caffeine. Uh, first week, I felt terrible. Second week, started to feel better. But that meant I had a control over me. I hadn't realized how important food was until recently, reading this book and thinking through some of these things. A couple of years ago, I did a diet. I'm not a vegetarian, but I did a vegetarian diet just to see what it would be like. And I had no idea. Now, I'm talking about just food. Sometimes we talk about food like it's just a women thing. It's a man thing. I went out with some friends to eat. I didn't realize how important to my manhood red meat was until I ordered food. But you know what else hit me? As I realized how much they cared about what I was eating. I wasn't making them eat a veggie quesadilla. You know why? Because food's incredibly intimate. Does it have any control over you? Then it's an idol. So we talk about what is an idol. A lot of times I think of idols and I just get this picture from the Old Testament. Golden calves or statues that we bow down to. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that an idol is anything in creation. Someone said creation. Uh, Paul says it like this. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 Paul says... They, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen? So whether we praise him or not, he'll be praised forever. But what happens is we get deceived into thinking that created things, so anything that's created that we worship is an idol. Food, sex, money, cars, houses, anything in creation, power, all of that stuff. Children, somebody said the first service, there's all, all that stuff that we worship, that's creation. And we're deceived into worshiping it, and it's an idol. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives a list. He says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. He calls greed an idol. 
He says, which is idolatry, greed. It's the longing for more and more. And we oftentimes just think that means money, more and more stuff, any of the stuff that we try to gather together for ourselves. That's idolatry. And so what do you do if you have these idols? Well, I, I challenge you to consider uh, if food's an idol for you. Would you ever consider spiritual dieting? And that means I'm not talking about dieting for the sake of losing weight or your health and all that's good. That's fine. But saying no to something that may potentially be controlling you to show that nothing will be your master. If money is an idol, here's, a, here's an antidote. Give. <laughs> it seems silly that I'd even say that. I was over at a thing at Summit Church a couple of weeks ago, and we were, we were listening to some business guys talk, and one of them quoted a stat that said um, the average Christian gives 2.4% of their income. Even though the Bible teaches that a tithe is the baseline for giving, and tithe means 10%. I know we call lots of things tithe. People will give 2%, call it their tithe. That's not a tithe. They give, that's pathetic. And, and I know there are people that are here in this room that could live on 50% of your income. And you'd struggle to give 10. Do you know what that means? Money's too important. And so I challenge you, consider tithing. You think I'm doing it just so that we can have more money as a church? Give it to another church. Do it so that you know. The money wasn't control you. Power, some people, power is their thing. Here's an idea. Serve the most powerful being in all of existence. Came to this earth, not to be served, but to serve. Think about serving. There are opportunities everywhere. We can give you opportunities here. We've got a setup team. You want to set up signs during the week? You want, Bridge Kids has a diaper with your name on it. There are lots of options of serving. But you know what you've got to do if you have an idol, idol in your life? It's more than just knocking the idol over. You've got to turn to where you see God is more glorious as the creator than any of his creation. The creation is meant to point us to the glory of God. Instead, what we do is we end up worshiping the creation. And so Paul's declaring to them, God is creator. He comes to them, go back to verse 23. And he says, for as I walked around, I looked carefully, I examined your culture. I thought deeply about the things that you're worshiping. And I saw your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription. So apparently there was a statue there that actually had this inscription to an unknown God. Now notice this. Those of you who do Bible study will notice this probably right away. Now what you worship, he didn't say who. He's talking about an object. The thing you worship. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And now he goes on to proclaim who? The one. The God who, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. In verses 25, 26, he continues to go on talking about God as creator. And if we're going to know him, we must know him as creator. So let me ask you this. What does it mean to know him as creator? We can debate the stuff whether he is or not. And that happened this week online. Some of you saw that. But we're going to talk about we believe the Bible here. We believe the scriptures. And that we saw from the very beginning he is the creator. And so if we believe that, he's the creator. What does that mean? Well, it means obviously he made everything. He's the author. He is the beginning. Before there was anything, he was. He is the uncaused cause. He created everything out of nothing. It's ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he made everything. That's all awesome. Let me ask you this. What does it mean to you now? Because we can talk about cells and how he holds the earth in place and, all, and that's all fascinating. What does it mean to you today that, that God is the creator and what does it mean to know him as creator? I believe it means at least three things. And the first one is this. That if he's the creator, we don't get to create him. If he's the creator... We don't get to create or recreate him. Last week, uh, Pastor Jason was sharing with us, our shepherding pastor, was sharing with us from uh, the pastor of the Bereans about how a lot of times we like to modify the scriptures. You know, when we're modifying the scriptures, we're not just making the scriptures fit our lives. We're recreating God. Some of you may not know this, but Thomas Jefferson, who was one of our founding fathers, 
I believe you know that much. But you might not know that what he did uh, one time was he sat down in the White House with a couple Bibles and a straight-edge razor blade, and he cut out sections of the Gospels that he didn't like. Wrote a book. You can Google it up. Um, it's called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did is he cut out every section of the Gospels that talks about Jesus as the Son of God and turned Jesus into a philosophical leader, an ethical guide. Do you know what he was doing? He wasn't just modifying the Scriptures. He was creating a Jesus he was more comfortable with. Guess what? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And if he created you, you don't get to create him. It's people who do that kind of thing that one day on Judgment Day will stand there and say, but didn't we? And they're going to be in for a surprise. We see it all the time in daily life. People say statements like, I would never worship a God who, I'd never worship a God who would allow bad things to happen. I'd never worship a God who'd send people to hell. I'd never worship a God who does things different than me. And guess what we're doing? We're creating a God that we are comfortable worshiping And so we're not worshiping the God that created us. We think we know him, and we don't. If he is the creator, we do not get to create him. Oftentimes we'll do it like this in in Christian circles. People who know the Bible well. Maybe you've grown up in church or you've been around this stuff for a long time. We'll talk about him as meek and mild, lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everybody loves that. What about the lion of Judah who judges the world, who comes in and turns the temple tables over? We don't like talking about that. We love it. It's one of my favorite verses. We'll quote, come to me all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your souls. Everybody wants that. But what about the Jesus who commands us to die if we're going to follow him? The one who says, your love's not worthy of me if you don't, in comparison to your love for me, hate your parents, hate your children, are willing to leave houses to come follow me. We don't like that stuff. We just, we don't have a straight edge razor blade, but pragmatically we do the exact same thing. And so we talk about him as savior, as love, as mercy, as grace. What about judge? What about wrathful? What about righteous and holy? And so we pick what we like and we leave out what we don't and we're recreating him. If he's creator and you know him as creator, we don't get to create him. He created us. We don't create him him in our image. He created us in his. And so if knowing God as creator means we don't get to create him, you know what else that means? It means he's king. Not only do we not get to create him, it means he's king. Paul says it like this in verse 24. He says, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. If he's the creator, then he is Lord over everything he created. He's king. He's master. He's the one who rules over everything he created. Yes, he's the author of life. Yes, he's the beginning. Yes, he's the creation. But more than just theoretically, what does that mean? Practically, what it means is this. He calls the shots. And what he says goes. So he made all this stuff. You, me, all the things we see. And he's Lord over all this stuff. If you go to an art show and you see a a work of art that uh, someone made, an artist made, you don't get to walk up and be like, that's a beautiful sunset. That needs some seagulls. Pull your Sharpie out and start writing on it. That's what, when we try to tell God how to call the shots, he's the king. He calls the shots. Now, if the artist comes to the show and says, you know what, this painting needs something. And he starts to, ch- he can change it because he made it. We don't get to change it. He does. Because he's the king. And the Bible says it like this. Who are we as the clay to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Well, see, he 
is the king, Lord of heavens and earth, Paul says here. Do you know what else it means? It means that he knows us better than we know us. It means we don't get to recreate him. It means he's the king, and it means that he knows us better than we do. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, first chapter that I was ever challenged to study, Psalm 139. You can look it up on your own, but it continually just goes through how well he knows you. That he knows before you stand up. He knows before you sit down. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He goes before you, behind you. He protects you. He knows your future. He knows your past. He knows everything you've been through. He knows everything that's going to happen in the days ahead. He's been there. He's outside of time. He was, in fact, there when you were in your mother's womb. That's where we get our fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows every genome. He knows every cell. He knows every detail, every hair on your head. Do you know what that means? That we can trust him. If he's king and he calls the shots and he knows me better than I know me, then he knows what's best for me better than I know what's best for me. That means I can trust him. He created all this. He knows what he's doing. Do you know him as creator? Paul not only challenges us to know him as creator, but look what he says next. He says you need to know him as father. If we're going to know him, we must know him as creator, but not only know him as creator, but know him as father. The next thing he says in this passage, verses 26 and 27, I'll start in verse 26. He says, from one man, he made every nation of men, and here's why, that they should inhabit the whole earth and determine the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And here's the second reason why, verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, he connects with their culture. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, that means he's our father. Since we're his children, we are his offspring. We should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. He is father. And Paul tells us there, if you ever wrestle with that question, why am I here? What am I doing? Should I keep living in this town? Should I change professions? What, what was, what's the right reason for existence? He told us right here in this passage. He says he created all of us, and here's why. First reason, he gave two purposes. First purpose, verse 26, inhabit the earth. Are you inhabiting the earth? You live here? Yes. Second reason, he gave, verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and reach out for him. And we see this all the time. The NIV says reach out for him. English standard says that we'd grope for him. The New American standard says that we'd feel our way to him. Some of you probably have these different translations. The image is the same, that we're, we're trying to find God. And we see this all the time. And we see it, some people do it through good deeds, and they're trying to, trying to please him. And some people do it, like you see Philip Seymour Hoffman this week, that shooting drugs in their veins. They're looking for God. Everyone's looking for him. And the picture is here that, that we can't see. We're groping for him. It's the image that I get is the idea that you wake up in the middle of the night. Have you ever done this? You wake up in the middle of the night, and uh, the lights are all off. It's totally dark. Your eyes haven't adjusted, and maybe you have to go to the restroom. Maybe there's a noise outside, whatever it is. And you get out of bed, and you're trying to find your way. The Bible says that we're spiritually blind. And so we're groping for him. We're looking for him. And then the Spirit does a work in your life. It's like someone turns the lights on, and what you see is the most transcendent, majestic being ever and he's your father. It's God. When Jesus draws you into his family, he adopts you to be his because we're his children when we become followers of Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches that we're actually born into disobedience. We're children of Adam. And that's why everyone sins for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we're children of Adam. And then we get adopted into his family, become his child. And think about that parent-child bond. It's called his offspring in this passage of scripture. That's an incredible bond. 
I think about with my own kids. We have four daughters, and uh, I love my girls. Um, adore them as, as my children. And can I be really candid with you? Before we had kids, I didn't like kids. Uh, you can think I'm a jerk, but I'll just tell you, I thought kids were obnoxious. I thought they were loud. They were dirty. They were sticky. They're just like these little creatures. My wife and I be married, and they, friends have kids already, and we go over to their house, and I'm kind of like, you just keep those suckers over there, you know? Cute. Go to bed. You know? It's kind of how I felt about kids. Now I have kids. I mean, other than trusting Jesus as my Savior, one of the biggest things that God's done in my life to help me understand his love is my kids. And I'll take them, I go out on dates with them. I love hanging out with the girls. And my one four-year-old, I hadn't taken her out on a date in a little while. She said, God, Dad, when are you going to take me out on a date? Last week, I took her out on a date. We went to McDonald's and got some ice cream. And then we went to the dollar store and she got a gift, a $2 date. I wish her mom was so easily impressed. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. We're sitting there, we're eating the ice cream. And I'm talking to her, and I go, Janie, do you know why I like to go on dates with you? It's, she says, no, no. And she's digging into that. She's got chocolate on her face. And she's like, because I just like to know what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart? She's like, I love this ice cream. Like, That's fine. You're four. That's where we're at. But I want to know you. I'm your father. I want to know you. That's what God wants with us. And you, you get this picture here of this parent-child bond. And you think about what God did to know us. He could have sent an angel from heaven that was so glorious we had to worship him. He could have sent a being that was so powerful that we'd be afraid and just, you know, wiping out mountains being or changing the color of the sky or setting people's clothes on fire. And we're like, ah, you're awesome. We do it because we were afraid, because he was powerful, because he was glorious. But instead he sends, not in power, but in humility, he sends his only begotten son. So he only had one begotten son. We get to be sons and daughters because we're adopted into the family. He had one begotten son, John 3.16. It's unique. And he sends him as a baby. Have you ever looked into the face of a baby? So fragile and innocent. And you look at your own child and you see yourself some, and he sends his son, his only son, who was in all ways tempted just as we're tempted, the author of Hebrews tells us, but did not sin. He lived a perfect life. And what does the perfect life get him? It gets him nailed to a cross. And his father's wrath is poured out on him. And he dies for you and for me. For each one of us. That's relational. He could have done it so many ways, but he wants relationship with you as your father. Now, I understand some of you had jacked up dads. And none of our dads were perfect. And we can't be guilty of putting that on the heavenly father who's a perfect father. And if we're going to know him, we must know him as that heavenly father. Do you know him as father? But not only know him as father, Paul goes on and he says we must know him as judge. You know, know him as creator, know him as father, and we must know him as judge. And we don't like to talk about God as judge. The only time people ever say God is my judge is when they're trying to get you not to judge them. God is my judge. (laughs) Let me ask you this before I read the next part. Are you sure that if you're going to make up the rules, that's what you want to say? Because if I judge you, you know what I'm going to judge you based on? my standards. I'm going to judge you based on what I think you should be doing. And I'll usually pick things that I think I'm good at, and I will forget about the things I'm not very good at. That's kind of how we judge each other, right? If I'm going to judge you, I'm based on, if God judges you, you know what his standards are? He says, be holy as I am holy. That's a command, not a suggestion or a joke. And none of us do it. But to know God as judge is exciting for the believer and terrifying for those who don't really know him. Let me read it to you. 
Paul says this to them after telling them not to treat God as an idol, to know him as father. He says this, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, which is an interesting statement to the Athenians who claim to know so much. These guys, these 30 men who sit on the Areopagus on the hill of Ares, a Mars hill, it's called in Greek, and they sit on Mars hill and they judge what ideas are going to be approved and not approved. He's going to say to them, listen, you don't get to judge God. God judges you. He says, in the past, God's overlooked the ignorance that you have in worshiping creation. Up until this point, all they've had is what Romans chapter 1 tells us is general revelation. It's, the, uh, it's creation. Everybody throughout human history, regardless of what they say their philosophy, their religion, their beliefs are, everyone knows there's a creator. And there's enough revelation, information about God to condemn people to hell. That's what they have. And Paul's about to give them enough information so that they can be redeemed and know him as father and know him as creator. Look at what he says next. He says, God's overlooked such ignorance in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Not just the Athenians, everyone everywhere to repent. That means stop worshiping the creation, but don't just stop. Turn to the one who created you. Don't just knock over the idol. Know the gloriousness of the creator, of the father, of the judge. Look what he says next. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You nailed him to the cross. He told us in Acts chapter 2. But God raised him from the dead. That's the proof. You're not going to be judged by Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or any other dead dude. It's Jesus Christ, God's son, who he raised from the dead that will be your judge. There's coming a day where we'll all stand before God, exposed, nothing to hide behind. No good works, no church attendance, no things that we said. He, there's not, in spite of some evangelistic tactics, there will be no quiz. We will stand before God and he will judge us. Jesus Christ is our judge. The passage tells us right here. And that they will look different for those who know him than those who do not know him. For those who do not know him, imagine a courtroom scene. He is the judge and the prosecutor. And we will stand before Jesus, and he will tell us that we did not know him, and he will cast us into hell. Don't think I'm making this up. I'll read this to you. You can read it on your own later. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15 say this. It's John, the apostle, telling a vision of the end of the world, what he sees. He said, and I saw dead. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, everyone. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, hell. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, if I didn't know you, he was thrown into the lake of fire, hell. That's Judgment Day for those who do not know him. Judgment Day is different for those that do know him. Scripture tells us the way that the scene goes is that Jesus is judge, but the accuser, Satan, is the one that's prosecuting. He's the one throwing the accusations. But what happens is that the judge comes down from his seat as judge and becomes the criminal. And he's on our behalf, speaking for us. And so all the accusations actually go on him. John, the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation, says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So we have, Jesus is going to take all the accusations, all this dumb stuff we've done, all the stuff from our past, all the things that could be said against us, will go to him. 
And what he says is this, Father, that perfect life I live, it was for him and her and him and him and her. The ones that I know, they're with me. And so when you see them, you see me. And all those accusations, what that means is on the day of judgment, the accusations are gone. The guilt's gone. The sin's gone. He wipes away every tear from every eye. And all that stuff is done. So for the believer, the day of judgment is a day of great anticipation. How exciting. Come now, Lord Jesus. That's why the Bible ends that way. But wait, wait, wait. Because there's more that need to know you. Because that other picture of judgment, that's not good. And that's what's going to happen for some. Do you know him as judge? Do you know him as father? Do you know him as creator? Do you know God? Not the one you made. Not the one who made you. And some of you don't. And today can be the day of salvation for you. Here's what you need to do. Acknowledge your sin before him. We've all done it. And believe that Jesus Christ died to take away that sin. Ask him to be your savior. Begin a relationship with him. And some of you, you, you know him as savior. But you veered off. You begin to worship creation. You begin to go your own way. Maybe you've become dry spiritually. The Bible tells us both of us what to do. All of us what to do. Not believer or believer. Repent. Stop. And turn. But don't just cut it out and be a good boy or a good girl. Turn to him, the one who loves you. And like the, the father in the prodigal story, he is the father to us. He runs to us and he wants us and he wants you back. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence. And I pray, I pray on behalf of those who don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you right now. I pray if there are any here that need your son, Jesus Christ, to like the one guy in the Areopagus that places his faith in Jesus because he's the one who died and the one who rose again, I pray that they would place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray right now for someone who's listening to me pray that you would trust Jesus at this very moment. Acknowledge your sin before him and ask him to be your savior. Let today be the day you begin to know him. And I pray for those of us that are followers of yours, Father. Draw us closer to you. Speak to our hearts right now. Speak to us personally. You know individually things that are happening I could never guess to pray. And by your spirit, will you tell those who need to hear that you love them, that you love them? And those who need comfort, give them comfort. Those who need to be prodded and probed and moved. And those who need to repent, they would repent. God, change us. As we are here as the clay, will you continue to shape us in who you desire for us to be? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.